0: Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome
1: to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. After a few weeks' absence, we're happy to welcome back my standard co-host, Ellie Mistal. I'm
2: 41 now.
1: Okay, that's great. We're excited to hold. Are you, all Joe? Know This 28. <laughs> so no, that's exciting. So you're old, and that's cool. And but you're you know you're I'm, making the best of it. Look, I still have a full head of hair, a real full head of hair. Yeah, no, and well, it, although it's it's gotten significantly grayer. Yes. Well, yeah, you know, two kids will do that. Yeah, it's two two kids and Donald Trump will do that. Yeah, it it kind of has that you've been weathered by the years in the Oval Office thing that happens to presidents, except I know what your day to day routine is and you have zero responsibility. (laughs) So I don't know what's caused it, but
2: watching that television, man, it's hard.
1: Yeah, um,
2: I'll tell you what's caused it.
1: Okay, here we go. It's, It's crap
2: like this Washington Post story about Elizabeth Warren. So that is a dumb story, isn't it? So today when we're recording this, you'll hear this next week. When we we're recording this, Washington Post just released a feature investigative story about Elizabeth Warren determining that while she was a law professor, she earned money.
1: Yeah, she uh, her campaign released a list of the rep- representations she undertook while being a law professor. She did some consulting.
2: Over 50 clients.
1: Yeah, over the m- many years she worked on 50 different cases or so and she charged around 675 an hour, which the Washington Post seems to think is some sort of scandalous thing that deserves to be in a headline, and those of us who've been around lawyers for a while are like, yeah, that that kind of it's kinda truly, seems about right.
2: it smacks of but your emails too, and so I think part of what's happening is that I'm overreacting a little bit, and I and I mean that like fairly, like I think mm. I am overreacting a little bit because I am so sensitive to the media's coverage of Hillary Clinton during 2016, right? So the the media has this thing. Where, Which I call faux balance, where they want to seem critical of both sides equally, even though both sides are not equally criticizable, right? Mm. And in an attempt to show that faux balance, they will hit upon some non-issue and rise it up to the level as if it's a real thing. So the Washington Post story makes me worried that they're doing that. But – Even if I take that out of the equation, as you did in your piece about this, which you should read about about, uh, on on Above the Law, even if I take that faux balance overreaction, kind of an allergic reaction to the mainstream media's coverage of Hillary Clinton, even if I take that out, what I'm left with is a dumb fucking nut of a story about how a law professor had clients and earned money that was presented with no context about how other lawyers – you know, there were you, as you said, it was six hundred seventy-five dollars. There was no context about what other lawyers charge yeah. for their representation, other high-end lawyers charge. Nor was there any context about how incredibly common it is for your law professor to take on clients, especially if they're a law professor at a major university like Harvard. People yeah. forget, and I'll just uh, I'll let you talk in a second. Mm. No, no. But but people forget that, like, especially if you're a professor at a school like Harvard or Yale, or Columbia, you know, one of these. You are a professor there because you. this is your life. This this field of law is your passion. And yes, you want to write about it. Yes, you want to teach about it. But you also want to take clients about it because it keeps you in the game. So it's completely uh, normal for a law professor to take on clients. And this story would never have been written about a male presidential candidate who's taken on a lot of clients. And I can prove that because y'all don't even know how much Alan Dershowitz charges for his representation.
1: And that's a that's actually a good point there. The, Alan Dershowitz is obviously a good example of another Harvard professor who takes on cases. His tend to be getting folks who with underage prostitutes out of out of trouble. But the Shots point, fired. but the point remains that yeah, they they take on these jobs. I really felt like the real issue here, and we've seen this from other media outlets, was this whole six seventy five an hour. That's so crazy, and it. it Kind of stokes this anti-professionalism biases and mentality out there, and it's it's unfortunate that the people who wrote it didn't bother to talk to anyone in the legal profession and find out that that's not actually crazy.
2: How do they do that? How does the Washington I mean, like? I'll accept that shit from Breitbart, but how does but, the Washington Post write an entire two thousand word article and not talk to a single other lawyer?
1: Yeah, I mean that was problematic, and it you know you say Breitbart, but. I, This is more of a New York Post jam. When uh, (laughs) Barbara Jones, who was working on the Cohen case, famously turned in a bill for 40-some-odd thousand dollars for reviewing tens of thousands and thousands of documents over the course of a month, people – the New York Post wrote an article talking about how ridiculous it was, how high her rate was, and it was also relatively in line with a lawyer of that ilk doing that level of job under that kind of deadline. And that's what's happening here. And it's really unfortunate, I think. Now, you can say what you want about the legal profession should be cheaper and allow for more access to justice, yada, yada, yada. But that's not what's going on here. This article is about we should bash lawyers for charging so much money. And it's really unfortunate that an entity like the Post didn't even bother to look into it.
2: The journalism aspect here is that if you're going to write an article about how much Elizabeth Warren charges, then your due diligence requires you to figure out how much people of her ilk, of her caliber at that time were charging for comparison's sake.
1: And this came out last night, the, The List, and they put up this story first thing in the morning. So maybe the issue is they couldn't get a hold of a lawyer or something to in time for their deadline to figure it out. They just kept calling and just going to voicemail or something, which is unfortunate because <laughs> if you're missing out on calls, if you're spread too thin, interruptions kill your productivity, but clients demand a quick response. The U.S.-based professional receptionists at Smith AI help law firms screen new clients and schedule appointments by phone and website chat. Plus, Smith AI integrates with your software, including Clio and LawPay. Plans start at just $60 a month. Get a free trial at smith.ai.
2: You got me. I was about to scream, unacceptable!
1: Yeah. Well, well, I mean, it would be, and that's why Smith AI is is what you need to go with. But anyway, moving on, we're now going to talk actually about a different kind of law altogether. Uh, We were talking about billable hours. Let's talk about class actions, and the plaintiff's side a little bit. So today we're joined by Jay Edelson of Edelson, uh, his own firm. So welcome mm. to the show.
3: Thanks a lot. Really happy to be here.
1: So Congratulations on the eponymous um,
3: <laughs>
2: law, uh, firm. law firm. Yeah. It was
3: really lucky. We drew out of a hat, and I just happened to win. So <laughs> I'm very proud of that moment.
1: So uh, let's talk a little bit about plaintiff's side work, because that's something that we don't talk quite enough about uh, here at Above the Law because a lot of our coverage is very fixated on big law firms in the city- in New York and D.C. But, you know, there's a booming business of injustices around the country that need lawyers willing to take them on. Uh, and what you do is a lot of those sorts of class actions, and What and in particular in the tech space, and what I was kind of interested in asking first is what drew you to this this line of work, there's so many opportunities for somebody like you to have been sucked into the defense side. What, what drew you to the plaintiff side?
3: Yeah, well, I, I was sucked into the defense side at the beginning. Um, I went to Michigan Law School and we were taught that the only jobs were at big law. And um, even though politically and kind of where my heart was, I wasn't terribly interested. For some reason, I bought into this idea that if you want to do really sophisticated law, it had to be at a large firm. I started... Uh, there were probably
1: 180,000 reasons,
2: probably. <laughs> what do you
3: mean in terms of... You're saying in terms no, of money? Probably not
1: then. I think he's saying $180,000, which probably wasn't the going route no, back then. Back then. Yeah, oh, yeah.
3: yeah. No, I've, I mean, I already have a bone to pick with you guys. You guys start the podcast lamenting how 41 years old is, is ancient. You know, I play a lot of volleyball, and I am three years away from being able to play in senior tournaments. Well, you've got to be 50 Oof. for that, and that—I mean—that's like the end of my life. The second I qualify, <laughs> but no. When when I started, I think Skadden was offering seventy-three thousand, and uh, that was a huge amount. I I think my first firm it was like sixty-seven or sixty-eight five, and we were thinking in terms of you know thousand-dollar increments. But no, I went to the defense side because uh, I thought it was the most sophisticated work I could be doing, and I started defending class actions. And it occurred to me pretty quickly that the guys on the other side were handling the same case I was. Um, so it was just as sophisticated. The big difference was that's all they were handling. So I, I got to do the really fun class actions, but then I also had to do really boring breach of contract cases, too. On the plaintiff side, the firms were picking and choosing their cases. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just seemed a lot more fun.
1: So that's what drives you into this. I guess another question is... When did, it, when did the decision come to, you know, go out, start your own firm, and what kind of challenges, lessons do you have from the whole experience of starting up on your own?
3: So, you know, Big Lon and I kind of agreed pretty quickly that I was a bad fit. So <laughs> uh, I, I was at one firm and then left to go to another firm where I thought it'd be Greener Pastures, and then six months in, uh, actually got fired. Which was pretty stunning to me because I've always thought I had a lot of talent for law, um, and um, what I didn't realize is that you know part of of what you've got to do on really just have success if you're working for a boss is to understand that you're <laughs> they're your boss and you gotta be deferential and all of that. And I, I, I'm just not really built that way, so
2: ah uh, the hierarchy.
3: Yeah, it was it was difficult though. I you know I had a wife and a mortgage and. She was in medical school, so it was a pretty scary time. But I realized quickly that I really liked law. I just didn't like law firms. Um, so I switched to a plaintiff's firm, and I worked there for a couple of years to kind of learn the business side of it. And then started my own firm when I was about four years out. I had gone to court, I think, twice. I had taken two depositions, defended three depositions, and I, I really had no idea what mm-hmm. I was doing. And it took, me, it took me a few years to figure it out.
2: We have listeners who, you know, are often thinking about jumping ship and starting their own business and, and what have you. From a plaintiff side perspective, can you th- talk a little bit about how many cases you need to keep in the kind of fire to keep the trains running on time? You know, when you're working on a contingency fee, when you have these cases that can drag out for very long, you still need to pay monthly, you know, rents and, 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 and you have payroll. So like how many cases do you really need to have kind of going at once in order to to have some confidence that one of them is going to pay off in a timely manner?
3: I think, respectfully, there's a little bit of a different analysis, which is the first question is how do you survive until any of those cases come in? So on the plaintiff's side, you could have 100 cases, but you might have to wait two to three years before any start paying off. So I had to do a mix of um, hourly work, uh, which I really hated, and, but it was enough to kind of keep the lights on. And then uh, it was two of us. And we would have, you kind of want to have as many cases as are manageable. And then you want to have a good distribution of bigger cases and smaller cases. Uh, at the beginning, you, you know, smaller cases are likely going to settle earlier. But you also want to have some big ones so that, um, so that at some point the cash, the cash flow issue isn't as big a problem. Right now, our firm is obviously a lot bigger. We have close to thirty attorneys and probably about three hundred cases uh, at any given time
1: so one thing you know that mix of smaller cases that pay off faster, billable hour work to kind of keep things going. one thing that's developed a lot over the last few years is kind of the rise of litigation funding it at first, I was when I first heard about it moving into the country, I was a little skeptical. But as I've learned more about it, i I've kind of grown to really appreciate the way in which it allows some of these claims that might never otherwise make it uh, to get heard. What's your take of do you do you work with litigation funders on some matters, not on others? Uh, what's your take on all that?
3: Litigation funding is difficult, and I'm sure it's mm-hmm. a lot easier now to start a law firm getting a bunch of money. And I see a number of firms that have started based on litigation funding. And I think in the end, those firms aren't going to actually be very successful. There was something really helpful about me having to be out in the woods for a few years where I had to figure out how to, how to keep the lights on. And it, it's kind of similar to Silicon Valley. If you give a startup $5 million right away, they tend to burn through the $5 million uh, and often they haven't learned a ton, and then they just want more money. So I, I think litigation plans in kind of limited circumstances can be really helpful, but um, I think it can breed a type of, of laziness and also a weird type of, of arrogance where you see some firms that get a lot of litigation funding, and they think that they've accomplished something, and they haven't won any cases yet. <laughs> so, um you know, I still like that there's litigation funding out there, but but I think it's fairly complicated, and it creates some weird incentives.
2: Yeah, I mean, my issue with them with it is always uh, the, the kind of ethical concerns. Like it, it as you put it, yeah, I think you put it exactly right. There, there are litigation funding introduces the possibility of some uh, of some perverse incentives. Not saying that that actually happens, but it certainly introduces the the possibility, um, the appearance of such.
3: No, I think it does actually happen. I and mean, there's different types of litigation financing agreements, but if a company is giving you money for one case in, in particular, you might have a huge incentive to hit a home run and no incentive financially to hit a single because you wouldn't get any of the money. Now, obviously, we have a duty to our clients, and you hope that all attorneys put that first, but you know, the, the tug of, of the financial arrangement has to mean something. My quibble, though, with your statement, if you don't mind, is that people focus a lot on the bad incentives on the plaintiff side, but I really found that to be true on the defense side. Right before I got fired from that firm, we had a firm meeting where where uh, the managing partner said, the firm's doing terrific so long as ex partner doesn't settle any of her cases, and it wasn't a joke. And um, I thought that was really horrible that we had such an incentive to keep cases going and just to keep billing the clients. And that's something that, and I I know you guys on Buffalo write about that and talk about that. And you had the whole uh, churn that file email fiasco. But my view is anytime you mention litigation financing, you have to talk about the defense incentives as well.
2: But yeah, they're all, they're all different kinds of overbilling schemes. I mean, look, the big law model and the defense model is to duplicate a lot of work, right? I mean, that you can argue that that's part of what you're paying for, you know, multiple lies and whatever, but it also, you know, put like this, the big law model does not um, encourage efficiency. I mean, that's not what it's there for.
3: I would go further than that. It's not that it just encourages duplication of work. The goal on the litigation side is to win as slowly as possible. In my first firm, as the first year, I came up with an argument and got a large class action dismissed in the first month, and I got a pat on the back. And the senior partner in litigation told me we just lost two million dollars in billables, and you know the message was pretty clear to me. You know, keep that argument, but try to figure out a way to uh, use it later on in the case. And that obviously, that's just something that didn't work for me. But (laughs) but that is
2: and doesn't work for clients.
3: It doesn't work for clients, but. But they often don't know.
2: Yeah. What What do you think about um, legal technology and that ability to kind of help people starting out, help people grow their business, scale, kind of kind of fight the big law firms at scale wh- when you're coming from the plaintiff's side?
3: Yeah, I think it's great. You know, back in the day when I started on the defense side, the amount of support staff we had to have was enormous. The way we're able to use technology we've uh, we have another office in San Francisco, and the way we're able to communicate with them and and share files and all of that really increases efficiency. I think overall, technology has really democratized law in a lot of ways that are incredibly helpful.
2: How do you go about like picking which software like do you do you go to these? tech shows and, and walk the room like to like do they do you take a, you open up your email and I'm like oh that spam actually looks interesting like how do you actually go about the process of picking the the client management software or picking um the doc sharing software that you're going to use
3: oh yeah no no one in my firm lets me anywhere near anything like that <laughs> so i i was a philosophy major i am even though we have a tech firm i'm the least techie person out there and so you know when i get a new iPhone. I have to have our i t department come and set it up for me. What's really lucky is we have i think we're the only i know we're the only plans firm who's done this. We have our own internal lab of computer forensic engineers and then tech savvy lawyers who are the ones who investigate cases and, and really come up with what's happening we We try not to bring cases with which chase the news. We like cases where we figured out you know that that uh Google's doing something awful and then uh, our lawsuit is kind of the first on the scene about that, that's a lot more fun for us. So because we have that infrastructure in place, questions like what software should, should we be using uh, get easily answered by those people, certainly not by me.
2: Can I pivot then and ask you, how do you hire the lawyers then? Because like, you know I know lots of lawyers who you know, are young millennials and they're the Luddites of their generation, right? Like The law doesn't necessarily attract your most kind of tech-savvy type of mind how do you go about finding the talent then for your lab for that kind of work?
3: It's hard. You're definitely right. I mean, for, for our firm in general, we have a lot of people who are not terribly tech savvy and, and, you know, we're not doing patent litigation. It is not rocket science, but we have to know, you know, enough to be able to understand it from, from our kind of internal experts and then be able to explain it to judges. In terms of the real tech savvy lawyers, they tend to find us because there aren't a ton of firms that do what we're doing. So that makes it a little bit easier. One of the really hard things in getting the lab going was I wasn't able to figure out who to hire because you have to actually understand tech at a really deep level to know who's good and who's just kind of snowing you. So that was a long process of finding the right people who were fluent enough who then could hire you know, smarter people than them. Uh, and it took us a few years to get that in shape.
1: Well, one thing that, uh, on the subject of hiring, uh, one thing about your firm is you have this reputation as a, as you know, as a kind of kind of like a startup environment, a more loose collegial environment. And that comes through in some of the marketing. And one question I wanted to ask is about the marketing, some of the marketing decisions. Like on your bio, you know, everyone in the firm lists their superpower they would have they would prefer to have and stuff like that what was kind of the thinking there like did you and have you seen that as a as kind of successful especially when you're trying to deal with people who are you know generally tech people suing the the you know the tech world is is that kind of marketing been a real boom for you
3: so our approach to marketing is we honestly first live to amuse ourselves, and that is our goal. So we've had people come in and say, you know, you've had guys dressed up as polar bears pull summer pranks on summers, and do you have like a PR agency (laughs) to pitch your ideas? And um, no, first of all, no one would ever come up with that. Uh, It's really just silly and a waste of time. But, you know, one of the great things, honestly, about having your own law firm is you can kind of do whatever you want. And I hate stuffy places. So the fact that we're able to to have a volleyball court in our office, that people are dressed in flip-flops all the time, that there really isn't a hierarchy, is really satisfying to me. And, and since it's above law, I can I can say this. It's also kind of an F you to, to all the other firms out there who had this view that you, if you didn't come in and wear a suit every day and you didn't have this – you know, if you hadn't practiced for eight years, you couldn't go to court. Uh, I love that every day we show that, that that's just bad thinking, in my view. We have third year associates who've done five or six big federal appellate arguments and have won them. And these aren't pro bono cases where, you know, I, a lot of firms use that to give people experience. These are like key issues that our firm has, but the attorneys are amazing. And they do an incredible job, and, and we let them argue it because we think that they're best positioned to argue it.
1: Well, you raised an all-time classic story there, uh, so now we've got to dig a little deeper into it for the people who don't remember it. You mentioned the summer associate issue. Uh, this is an all-time classic above the law story. You And I want to hear you kind of go through the oral history of it a little bit. You brought in a uh, summer associate that uh, clashed a little bit with the rest of the rest of the class but by design
3: yeah so we hired a a fake summer associate a professional actor and his job was to be the worst summer associate of all time and he was here for a week the problem with him was that he's so charming and funny everyone loved him uh but he had all these bits set up where he was like covertly hiring an out-of-work lawyer to write his memos uh, which the summers would see, but we didn't know about it. And then he would hand it to me, and I would go, "This is how to write a memo." <laughs> um, and it was it was terrific fun, and it was actually really bonding for for the summers because you know the summer goes quickly, and we don't want people to to be nervous. And when like that type of craziness is happening, they're all getting to know each other. They're all asking, "What is going on? Is this some weird prank? Is this real?" And, you know, it's really, I'm, I love all our summer classes, or almost all of them. And <laughs> this was the best summer we ever had. But we've done a lot of pranks. I and mean, we had the polar bear prank. We had a prank where we pretended that, that the Fed had shut us down. Uh, so when people came in, there was like police tape <laughs> and then uh, investigators who were asking questions. That one we wouldn't uh, repeat. That was a little stressful. <laughs> kid, so, so we're tamer now.
2: Especially in this era of uh, of our country. That's right. Um, can I ask a little bit about your your pay structure, right? So, because this is something I, I think a lot of especially law students think about when kind of given the option of maybe going away from big law. So, big law generally lockstep by year. If there's an hour requirements, it's lockstep once you hit those hours in terms of bonuses and what ha- and what have you. Is that what you guys do, or or do you or do you take a kind of different approach to the salary structure?
3: We pay all associates. $150,000 a year, and the expectation is most of the money they're going to make is uh, through bonuses. And the bonuses uh, vary widely. We've had some associates get six-figure bonuses in the past. Whoa. I know. It's,
2: That's a lot of 3L beer.
3: <laughs> but, you know, it's because the guy came up with a ridiculous case, which made us a lot of money and, um, and was really good for the firm. And what we want is for people to have skin in the game. So so we understand people are coming here and they're going to have uh, a smaller salary yearly than other firms, but we want them to be hungry. We want them to be saying, you know, if I do well, I can buy a house. And we don't care if you're a first year. If a first year can can do really well and can, you know, set up a fund so their, their kids' college tuition is paid for, that's great. It's great for, for the first year. It's great for the firm. Great for everyone.
1: This was very, very interesting because we don't talk about plaintiff side stuff nearly enough, and so it's great that you were able to come here and talk uh, talk through this with us. And it doesn't hurt that you're uh, you're a fun firm, so uh, we got to get some good stories there.
3: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys having me on. Obviously, I, I love what you guys do both on the ATL website and, and the podcast, so this was a huge pleasure for me.
1: Great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Well, if you all are listening to this show and aren't subscribed, you should be subscribed. You should give it reviews, stars, re- you know, write something, help us move up the algorithm uh, as law podcasts. You should be reading Above the Law. You should be following us on Twitter. He's at LENYC. I'm at Joseph Patrice. You should be listening to the other LTN podcasts and the Jabot, which is Catherine's podcast here at Above the Law. And with all of those things said, I think that's it. So uh, we'll talk to you soon.
2: Happy summer.
0: If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own. And do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.